I always like to think youth development is that like tag team partner for the teacher. And so every time I worked in after school, I'd be like, all right, tagging in, right? What could you do during the school day that maybe we might need to do here? Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? First of all, I love the fact that you use a doodal. <laughs> I've learned from the best. I've learned, okay? okay. <laughs> my name is Jess Van. I work in youth development as my form of education in various different after-school programming and partnering with schools and other youth organizations. Gosh, why do black educators matter? Oh, my goodness. They, we... <laughs> matter because I think we bring so much to the table. We bring no 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 disrespect or shade to our other counterparts, but I, there's a level of love and extraness, should I say, that we bring to the space of education, um, mostly because I think we're coming from a space of not using a story or using a, I'm trying to figure best way, best way to put this, but I think we're not coming from a perspective of wanting to help the community. Y'all can't see me, but I put it in air quotes. I feel that we're not coming from a space of, of, of we need to help the kids. You know, I think we definitely, we come into this field because it comes from a space within us that grabs us and says, this is what I want to do. And I want to do it because of change, because of hope, because of it's my passion, because of I was influenced by a mentor. We go into it from a different space than some of our other counterparts. That's just my opinion. Or sometimes we just fall into it and don't even realize it's, it's a thing that we're good at. But I also think that comes with the fact that it comes within us. I really, truly think education and that aspect of service in that way comes from within uh, black teachers and educators. Then we learn along the way if it's like for us or not, you know, like, like any other career path. But black educators don't approach the work with white savior complex. Yes, none of it. I, yeah, and honestly, white saver complex is probably the most annoying form of white supremacy that I, I just because I've worked in non for profit and education for so long that it is the one thing that is I, I'm always fighting in the most professional <laughs> and the most perfect, perf, I was gonna say professional way as possible. And I've worked for some insane, predominantly white institutions. That is just leads from that foundation of, oh my gosh, we're here to help the people. Let's plaster all these brown and black kids in our marketing. And then you walk in the space and it's an old white lady or like, you're like, oh Jesus, here we come. You know what I mean? But not saying that old white women are come from a white saver complex, but let's also talk about the historical aspects of why even not-for-profits are even here. Um, we could get into that, but we only got 30. You ain't got a lot of time. So. 
that's why they're even here is this concept of we have to fix and help and it's annoying on so many levels but yet here I am working constantly working in these in these spaces um, because the, the spaces are needed like and it's yeah, so interesting yeah. This conversation is going to be about your journey, but I wrote down like white savior complex as a tool of white supremacy. I want to unpack that conversation with you another day, because like you said, we can talk about that all day, especially when it comes to nonprofit organizations and building a career within the nonprofit space. So, you know, today we're going to talk about you and your journey in education, but let everybody know that we both know we know. And for anybody who watches Insecure, we've seen the We Got Y'all. We know what We Got Y'all looks like. We my have friend, seen it. My friends would be like, girl, you was Issa Rae. I'd be like, I got stories. 90% of the things she went through, I have been through. <laughs> I, too, have stories. Working in nonprofit, you will see a lot of uh, stuff. But we will save our nonprofit yeah. talk for another time. So, especially when we talk about like youth development and after school programming, educators is such a broad field. So when we say educator, we mean everyone who contributes to this growth and sharing of knowledge between generations. So with you, let's get back to the scripted questions uh, before we get into like your career path and how you got to be where you are today. Where are you from? Oh, I am born and raised in L.A., Lansing, area michigan <laughs> let me rephrase that i am from lansing michigan back home we call it the lansing area so <laughs> i am from the bitten born and raised um but chicago's been my second home since i was a kid i've been coming here my family out in the south side south suburbs down south kankakee area so I've been coming here for so long that by the time I was eight years old and could understand skyscrapers and like knowing like big city and we drive, we would drive to Kankakee and we would just pass downtown and I would just look out the window going, I'm going to live here one day. And we used to come to the taste back when we were younger when my grandmother was still alive. And I'd be like, this is, this is where I'm going to be at. And so I've always, I remember also coming here and, being mad at my parents or my dad because, like, we couldn't go downtown or we, we couldn't go eat dinner downtown or in the city. We always had to stay in, like, Harvey, Illinois or something crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, was, I was young, and I just, I just wanted to get that feel of it. So Chicago's always been a second home for me. And I, still, I mean, I still have family here. Uh, my aunt lives out west. So, so this has been second home for a very long time. So by the time I graduated from college, I already knew where I was going. Like I knew where I was moving to. I did my whole theater book out of every, like how to look for apartments. Mm-hmm. I, did, I knew where I was going by the time that I was a child. And then and once the opportunity hit, graduated college and moved to Chicago. And I've been here for almost what, 13 years now. You knew you was coming to sweet home, Chicago. I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. We've had a love hate relationship since I moved out here because adulting is hard. Okay? Adulting is very hard, especially in the city of Chicago. Yeah. So yeah. let's compare our beautiful Chicago, beautifully diverse and complex. The city that is Chicago with Lansing area, Michigan, and you growing oh up. My. Well, uh, <laughs> what was like your K twelve experience like in Michigan? Well, I went. Oh, we, we oh Jesus! So 
I loved being a kid in Lansing. I grew up on the south side of Lansing, but I went to school for high school literally on the other side of the tracks. On the, literally at a past tracks to get to my high school. But in elementary, though, my parents put me in private school. So I went to private school up until eighth grade, and then I did a stint in um, public school, and it was the worst seventh grade year of my entire life. As a young black girl, I'm, I'm a bit eccentric. I'm a bit different. I've always been that way. I've always listened to a lot of different music, but also Lansing is a predominantly white, diverse in its own way city. So I was always the one of two black students in my school, or not in my school, in my classroom. There wasn't a lot of us, and I went to private school. I didn't have a lot of black teachers. Actually, I don't, don't think I had any black any educator until I got to high school and it was our principal. So it was just a different, different kind of, 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 of acceptance, I guess, and, and many different rights, be it either from the black kids or the white kids, just because I was just like this different child who wore bright colors and marched to beat her own drum, but was also very connected and in tune with her blackness as a, as a young child, just because of my parents was very instilled that in, in, in our home. But then as I, when I go to the schools and I'll ask questions about whatever we're learning in history, or if I got really interested into the, the slavery section in U.S. history, I wanted to know more. So I always found myself in our libraries and doing my own extra outside of what the education system was teaching me just to know more about who I was as a black as a black person. So I got into Maya Angelou really young. My mom read a lot of Terry McMillan books and April Sinclair and Toni Morrison in the house. So I would sneak those books <laughs> and read them or I would, you know, sneak all this. She had a lot of African diasporic books in my home and I would sneak them and try to read them. And she would always be like, you are part of the African diaspora. Like that was always my mom growing up. And I'd be like, oh my God, let me just wear my black and listen to Nirvana, right? So like, that, <laughs> that was like me like, at some point. You were black goth girls before black goth girls was a thing? It was cool. I was, I was a funk rock chick at the youngest of youngest age. And... Imagine unpacking that as an adult when, as a kid, that's all you got made fun of, and then all of a sudden you're an adult and you're like, "Oh, this is cool now." <laughs> yeah. But, but that was that was just how I I would go into school, wear my cross colors, and just be like, "What are we learning today?" I remember in art class we were we were drawing our reflections of ourselves. At the time, Crayola didn't have the range of colors, so I was just kind of stuck with brown and black. But I was too light for the brown, but too, you know what I mean? So it was like learning how to shade and art was because I was trying to match my skin tone. Having your friends draw you and asking you about your nose and your black features, it was, I remember it being a weird moment, but then like not knowing what to do in the moment, right? I remember the cops coming to teach dare, right? I remember all of these moments and, and feeling like, I don't know if I like the fact that this cop is in our school when my cousin just got shot a week ago or this happened in my family or that. So it was always this, 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 uh, I can't even explain it, but knowing you're black, right? When you go home, (laughs) 
And then walking into a, a predominantly white Christian, I went to Christian school too, educated system is was an interesting, interesting path, just to, to say the least. And, you know, as crazy as it is, you know, has made me who I am today because I wouldn't be in this field trying to one dismantle it as well as working with young youth if I hadn't had the childhood that I had. And I think I had a pretty great childhood. It just came with a different experience because it was the 90s, you know? Yep. I understand that because I also went to private school from K through five before I moved to Chicago and met these city kids in these public schools. (laughs) So I enjoyed my Christian school, but I realize now that they had a big picture of white Jesus in the hallway, you know, that big old picture of white Jesus. And when you got in trouble, you had to go sit under the picture of white Jesus. (laughs) It's like, this is disturbing. You know, I remember asking those questions when I was, I was like, why is, so we would have, we had like black Jesuses and brown Jesuses in, in my house, right? Because like, it just made sense. <laughs> like, I, it, oh gosh, yes. That, that like, catechism and come to a Lutheran school. It was a Lutheran like, school. I went to a yeah, Lutheran school. Like, and they had, you know, praise and worship. The whole kid had church on Wednesdays, all of it. And, but there were still moments where I was like, and all the city kids came the year I was the two couple years I was there. We had all the Lansing Public Schools kids for some reason decided to go to the Lutheran school I went to. So we had some we had some good tasks, you know? <laughs> but it was also it was but you know in that space it was you definitely had to either be or you just had to glide on right as a as a black kid. And I I, I mean I had a big personality then and. But I always questioned a lot of why we didn't have this or how come I couldn't find this book in our library, like all all of that, which I would just find myself at the Lansing Public Library a lot of time or just buying books and, and reading whatever I could read. And in my school, in my class, there was only 18 people that graduated. I went to a small Lutheran school and there was two black people in, that, in, my, in my class mm-hmm. and lots of Hmongs, Asian culture, Love that history, and that was it. And like two Mexican boys. So that's so, what the that's what your class makeup I was, like, was. Class of eighteen, and everyone was also white, blonde hair, and blue eyed. That was it. So okay, okay. So small class sizes. Would you say that having that small class size, y'all built strong relationships, or was the diversity still an issue? I, you know, within my classroom, we're, we built friendships and relationships because at the end of the day, we were still kids. It was still fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. You know, I got my first boyfriend in eighth grade and he was a white dude, but you know, but that's, there was also no other, <laughs> like it was, you know, and I think we all had friendly relationships because we all were literally in the same classroom from like eight to three, unless you went to PE and that's when we had to split for like music and this, but other than that, it was, it was, it was that, but I know we had one year, I mean, we had this one teacher and I was like, you are, I think you're racist. Like in my, in my head, some of the things she would say to us, um, and that was the first, the second public school, the first public school I went to from kindergarten to third grade, I did have a legit racist third grade teacher where she would hold a lot of the black kids back to work on their math. 
And she was just so mean to all of us. Since, since her, I don't have a good relationship with math. And it legit, me and math and numbers do not have a good relationship because of this teacher in her purple Jeep and this white woman's blonde hair. She would hold us back and she would let some of the white kids go for recess. But me and some other people would be like, you got to finish this right now. You're not getting it. And it was just so territorial and just so angry. And we, I remember getting sent to the principal's office and the principal yelled at me and was like, you don't know what, you don't know how to do this. You don't know how to do this. Call your parents. I was like, you're going to call my parents. Cause I don't know how to subtract. I'm in school. They're going to send me back to school. How you going to snitch on my mama? Cause I'm not learning. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn. And y'all yelling at me because I'm struggling. I don't know if this is how this works. I know that I'm eight years old, but I'm pretty sure. And ever since then, I had I have not the best, and I'm gonna call this trauma. Like I don't, I mean, I cash my do the things I need to do, but when I'm tutoring kids now in math, or when I'm supporting kids now, I don't let them know that, right? I'll tell the story and share an experience and whatnot, but I will still come up to a certain level in math that I will be like, oh man. So I found different tutoring techniques in ninth and tenth grade to, to so that we're learning it together. But yeah, that was that was wild. That speaks to the impact and influence of educators because that trauma really does stay with people. It yes. stays with people. So like that trauma connecting you with math, that same trauma, that's what imposter syndrome looks like. That's what when people have really poor interpersonal relationships at work because their confidence is affected. Like that stuff stays with us. Okay. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. A lot of those experiences, though, at a young age, I knew I wanted to work with young people. By the time I got to high school, I was like, I want to work with young people. I don't know how this book or what this means, but I think I'm good with kids. So <laughs> when I turned 18, my uncle, um, loving the death, he was like, you should work for the city. And I was like, cool. I don't know what this means, but I need a summer job because I'm 18. Going to college, this sounds like the right thing to do. <laughs> so from 18 to 20, up until I moved to Chicago when I was 24, I worked for the city of Lansing doing summer programming and after school programming. And I just literally, I, if I still lived there, I would probably be a some director or executive or whatever the case may be. But I learned so much about leadership during that time. I learned so much about different techniques than how to work with kids and, and kids who are challenging. I learned how to build connections with young people. I learned so much in that time. By the time I was 24, I was literally helping running the mayor's walk. And they made me a team leader, which is like you just kind of managed a bunch of summer sites. You would go to each site for a number of times. Managing people by the time I was 20. Like, I, what the heck did I know? I just knew how to work, how to communicate and be a good working colleague. That's the only reason I knew. But what I didn't know at the time is that I was building my leadership qualities and my leadership skills 
on how to effectively have positive working spaces and things like that. Uh, and then I moved here and worked in after school and in youth development, which was a new term mm-hmm. about years ago. I was like, what is this youth development? What does this mean? <laughs> what does it mean? For people who are unfamiliar with youth uh, development, what does yeah. it mean? So it's just an umbrella word or statement that supports youth through elements of social emotional learning as well as building personal and critical thinking, right? It's just literally in in this words of developing the student in the way that maybe a teacher might not be able to do it and maybe be able to spend more of that one-on-one time or being able to just work a little bit closer. I, I always like to think youth development is that like tag team partner for the teacher. And so every time I worked in after school, I'd be like, all right, tagging in, right? <laughs> what couldn't you do during the school day that maybe we might need to do here to continue to build the, the child from a from a mental, emotional, every part of the level, like a holistic approach to uh, to the learning process so that when you get them back the next day, you see improvements, right? And so when I work in after school problem, we, all, we, we would often talk about that bridge between the, to the start of the day and the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And how Actor, right? We're the bridge. We're the, they're the the kids legit walking across a bridge to then continue their learning. So in a nutshell, I'm pretty sure some youth development workers are like, that ain't it, Jessica. But that's how I've always, I've always viewed it, is, is being that tag team per person to a teacher to focus on the on all aspects of the child that if the academic component happens and the teacher is supposed to like the data yes the the tag team person is the person that might be able to support with some of that other data like attendance attendance right so i worked at a big american corp organization that was three things we focused on attendance behavior and course performance yeah so we had a very good relationship each each school partner had a very good relationship with their teacher and well they should have had a very good relationship with their principal but the teachers were the ones that i would go to and be like hey so-and-so student is with my americorps member we noticed that they've been struggling in after school is there anything we should know about in the first day first day of school and that was at that organization we built that bridge. Some organizations I worked at, we did get access to things like IEPs. So we would, would be able to maybe get the very specific uh, emotional response or attendance response that we may have needed to do to support the, the counselors and whomever to make sure everyone was upholding to this IEP. And, and you know, in college, I'm, I'm, this, this will all tie together. I thought I was going to be a teacher. And then I saw the requirements for being a teacher, and I was like, eh, we won't do that anymore. But I remember sitting in my dorm, and I said, Lord, you will put me in a space to work with you, and I just don't know what it was going to look like. And lo and behold, I have been very fortunate to do this work now for like over 15 years. I'm only 36. I started when I was 18. Because of that journey, I can have conversations about IEPs. I can have conversations about uh, restorative justice practice that maybe be switching that Chicago Public Schools. I can have these conversations because I've worked in so many schools and so many different communities using various different techniques to support what the child. And so if I'm supporting the child using the the pedagogy and the foundation, what can I do? What can I can I instill in my, my staff and my managers that maybe focus on the social emotional learning from a different perspective that's something we can bring to these after school programming or where I work now, do service learning or whatever the case may be. And I just a twofold. So I ended up going to school for my masters and training in development, mm. which has helped me 
kind of navigate different spaces as well. And I'm always trying to learn the new thing. Oh, restorative justice practices? Great. Who's, who's leading the training? How can I get involved, right? Or how to read an IEP? Great. How can I get in there? Oh, we're talking about the new report cards? Great. What do I need to do? Because I need to be involved in that to, to, to support the teacher, right, in the school and to also know that and to also let the student know is like just because you're coming to me for after school or before school or during your lunch period, I'm speaking the same language as your teacher, your principal, the custodian, like everybody. So, like, it takes a village. A village. A village cannot operate if we ain't speaking the same language. But maybe I might be able to, to provide an emotional support that the student may feel more comfortable, maybe. And that happens all of the time. That's that, that's that tag team and that ecosystem where yes. we talk about like yes. creating an ecosystem of educators and supports for students and for families and for communities. Yes. This yes. is why like partnerships yes. work. This is why you need collaborative relationships because it's, it's not that teachers cannot do it all. It's that teachers should not have to do it all. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's not, no one is saying that, teacher, you can't do all of these things. But if you have a team, you know, I love a super team. A super yeah, I, team. I love it. I've worked at some good schools. We had a great super team. I'm you like, know? I'm part of this team. Okay, yes. Let's do this for Johnny. Yep, <laughs> because it's for Johnny. Let's do yeah. this for Johnny. Exactly. So as you reflect on like all of your experiences, from your own experiences with your third grade teacher, to your your experience, they heard came out loud, but I won't. You know, <laughs> all of these different experiences through you going and getting your master's degree in Michigan, seeing these schools in Chicago. What would you say is the state of education in Black America, and how did we get here? How well we got here through many things, redlining. Black folks not be able to learn after Jim Crow. Many things got us. Many of historical things got us here, which one is not good. And that's just because white supremacy ran rapid before we were both on this earth. But I think the the struggle is that people continue to stay in that mindset of that black people can't, black people won't, black children can't. And then they say they can't and then put them in this bucket and in this box because they're from this community or that community or this and they start to build these dumb stereotypes and I'm like well first of all you are wrong first of all let's stop we can't be great actually no we can be great we have been great we continue to be great but what you can't do is continue to put little Johnny and little Brenda in these boxes when they're five because they live in neighborhoods because you have an issue with X neighborhood and that every kid that comes out of Inglewood or West Pullman or all this, it's like, no, 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 honey, that's not what this is about. How about you go to West Inglewood and talk to Brenda and ask her what she wants to do when she gets older? And then how about we support Brenda to get there? And that has nothing to do with nobody. A village gets to support families however they need to be supported. And we need to support Brenda however she needs to be to support Brenda. And that has nothing to do with where she resides. Mm-hmm. And I have to remove, and not we, white folks, non-BIPOC folks, need to remove 
their ideals of what they see and view in these news outlets and in these other stories. And oh my gosh, this, if you ain't, keep, keep Chicago out your mouth, HGV ain't been to Chicago. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, that's, and, and, and I think we get there because of the fact that people just have these dumb stigmas and these stereotypes that, of course, comes out of white supremacy that it was, of course, built for us to be here. It's like, how about we just don't think all those negative things and just support Brenda and John? Because, and see, this is going to take us back. I knew we were going to somehow get back to this nonprofit white savior complex. It's poverty porn. When you yes. talked about earlier yes. about putting black and brown kids on your marketing material. So let's read the language that you're using to describe Brenda, Johnny, and Chris. And yes. let's see how you describe their neighborhoods. Low-income family? Low-income family? I get to be defined by that my whole life. Like exactly. All the language that you write about me is from a deficit mindset. And you... You use the see it. I told you we we said yes. this is going to be another day. But I think the problem then is then we get to the schools and people still have the same thought about the school that's in set thing. So the teachers who then and then you got teachers who go there like oh I'm working in in this neighborhood and oh my gosh we're gonna make it's like stop it stop it just stop it you don't know the history of said neighborhood you don't know how long folks been living there we probably got grandmamas who lived there before redlining before the white before all of this so when there was money in x neighborhood before you just don't know and one thing i try to teach any of teachers i I work with or any other educators is like if you want to work with me we can work you're not going into this space with that I can't. Like, I can't. I will work with you, but I want to work alongside you. And in order to do that, we need to dismantle that thought right away. Come on. Um, So, and I'm very upfront with that in the beginning because you can't, we can't build connection. You can't build these relationships and the support with whom you're working with if you can't dismantle the negative thought that you are already preconceived things walking into. Oh, Chad, I can go on and on about that, but... (laughs) But I, but I think that's why I, one, of, one of the reasons, that's just one of the reasons why I think we are here where we're here. It's this, this white supremacist thought of what one thinks X neighborhood is. And that then trickles down into how the kids are, how the community is, how the people are, how to this. When, you know, I look at it as culture, you know. I mean, even, the, even if the gangs are there, so get to know them. Like, I, the bottom of like, it's like, okay. You know, build, let them know you are there to support, or I, I don't know. Like I just, I just think, and yes, gun violence is real, and all of that is, is is real, and those things happen. But we have to then, what happens afterwards? How we were supporting and uplifting that said community, rather than posting it on the news that so many people got shot and killed. It's like, no. What's the reform? What's the restorative approach the next day? to support that family, that community, that friend, that this, that, that. Like, let's let's not do poverty porn and let's not do anti-blackness porn. Let's not do that. Like, like we got to do better. And exploiting the violence that's happening in the community without ever, like you said. So we're talking from a youth development standpoint and using data to drive instruction. We know that if we're looking at the numbers this year, there needs to be an intervention put into place so we don't have those same numbers next year. We can't have the same outcome. But if every year we're having the same outcome 
or you're only reporting a certain outcome, then it's like, well, what investment do you really have in this community and how are you trying to make it better? Or are you just exploiting the holes? You yes. just pouring gasoline on the fire. You're never coming over here trying to understand what is on fire. What, why is it on fire? Is there something causing this fire to continue to burn? Like you're never asking those questions of the community and in the community to work with it, to fix the problems. You just want to, that community on fire again. That's because that's all they do is set fires. They can't, that's just it. They man, just, man, 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 man. Go sit down. It takes several ass seats. Oops, sorry. It takes several seats. of the seats. Several of the several seats. Of the seats. <laughs> but that's why it's so important to have partnerships with community organizations who understand the community because lots of times you might just work in a place and have no connection and that's fine, but it can't stay that way. Even yes. if you didn't have a connection day one, by day two, by day three, there needs to be some build, but that's why it's so important to have partners to come in and help build that ecosystem. The landscape, for sure. Yes. And I do the same thing in the schools. I do the exact same things who are the teachers, who are the, who do I need to know in this building? Yep. Who do I need to build relationships with? What are the students? Who are this? I take the same approach so that if the kids want to be like, oh, Miss Jackson, you know you're working in the hood. I'd be like, sir, I am well aware of where I'm at. Like, yeah. <laughs> That that is it goes tenfold every time every time every time. So you said that you have your master's degree in training and development. So mm -hmm. are you working on any specific curriculum or anything that people can support you with? Like how can people connect with you? What are you working on? That is a great question <laughs> because I work on a lot of things because my undergraduate is actually in theater. So I'm also a working actor in the city. So I'm a performer. I do a lot of side gigs, a lot of side business in and around anti-racism work and um, um, EDI work, which is equity, diversity, inclusion. And then I have my actual job working in service learning projects and civic engagement with multiplying goods. So I do a lot. So, and, to, and I say that to answer that question is I'm always working, especially now where everybody and mama want anti-race, all these put on me white institutions. It's like, oh my God, racism, let's call somebody. So it's like, <laughs> so anti-racism work has been needed and wanted during this time. So I'm always looking for new ways to approach it. I did a few trainings, actually this last two weeks, I've run like healing circles using restorative and peace circles um, that people will ask me to come and do. And then for my own work, I, for my at my job at MG, I've been working on, I've participated in supporting in our uh, healing spaces and uh, safe spaces for some of our advisors that we work with to talk about allyship and anti-racism and, and all the things. So I, I, it's nice to be able to provide and work on new content as well as old content to bring to these various new spaces in theater and um, at my job. So it's been a blessing. So to help, Chow, you want to you wanna, uh, tip me on Venmo? <laughs> I know, that's right. So how can people connect with you and follow you on social media? Oh, my gosh. So you can follow me on a few different places. Um, if you want to get to know me on a personal level, you can follow me at j.journey. That is J dot, not the actual dot, the spell out dot, journey. Um, if you want to see what we're doing over at Multiplying Good, uh, you can go follow us over at Chicago for Good. That's Chicago, the number four. Um, good. Really trying to get to 200 followers by the end of the month. So come on over and see what we're doing with the kids. 
Um, and if you want to follow my entrepreneurial life, um, you can follow me at j.creates. Uh, yeah, those are all my three spaces. That's so I'm in my personal one. There's a lot of, you get, you'll get to know me as Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> That is so fantastic. Before we close out, I want to thank you for everything that you've done to come to the city of Chicago. That was always your home and your heart. Yes. We love you. We need you here. Thank you for everything that you've done to support all of our communities in this city and and the impact that that will have across all the lands. Um, are there any black educators that you would like to thank? I've been waiting for this question, by the way. Uh, one in particular is Mr. Maurice Sweeney. He is the chief diversity officer now, but when I knew him, he was just the principal at Tilden High School in the back of the yards. And I just want to thank him for being a mentor that I didn't even know I needed. And we are close in age, and it's, it's not often you find peer-to-peer -peer mentors, but the way he principled... <laughs> with vulnerability and like openness and just always had the students first, like every conversation. And one of the things that he said at like my first, my first or second year there at a, at a professional development, the teachers and the staff was lean into discomfort. And I take that statement with me at every job I have, every youth I encounter with is to lean into discomfort because that brings about growth was the full statement and i just want to thank him i think he i thank him and tag him at a lot of things but that man is busy because you know cps is working on a lot of different things right now but i just i he is definitely um he's from louisiana he got, mm. got that, that that got that nola pride and i just want to thank him for being the mentor i didn't think i needed and being the mentor that i'm glad that i have as an educator Shout out to him for that. And shout out to the peer-to-peer -peer mentor. That's so incredibly powerful, too, especially when we talk about ecosystems. Yeah. And just having people that are like-minded, that understand you, that you can, like, build and grow with each other. So, for real, yeah. shout out to that. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. Again, everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.